Yes, I'm, I've just learned that uh, Steve Winwood is is not the guy on uh, Procol Harum's "White Shade of Pale," a song with which I'm obsessed this morning. I've, I've been, I think, I've listened to seven or eight different versions of "White Shade of Pale." This morning, I listened to Booker T's, I listened to Willie Nelson's, I listened to Noel Harrison's, which is the one I used to think of as the superior and definitive take. But listening to it now, I see why people found it was funny because the band. Like, they just sound like they're not very not inspired to do this. Although I do like the more restrained reading. Hello and welcome to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, the only podcast where we discuss cover versions of Procol Harum's Whiter Shade of Pale Until People Cry Uncle. My name is John Darneal. I'd like you to meet Joseph Fink, creator of Night Vale. Go ask Alice and... No, not go ask Alice. Alice, Alice can't read. No, <laughs> I did. I did also under a different name. Right, go ask Alice. Back oh, in what I was wish. that the seventies? Oh man, can we just do go ask Alice? I know there have been like whole podcasts devoted to it and stuff, but man, did you ever read the sequel? No, there's a sequel. I forget the name of it, but they wrote a second one. Like it also by anonymous, or I think it is. I think it's continuing her story. Did she die at the end of that? Spoilers. I don't remember. Yeah, no. She uh, that well. It was claimed. I mean, the thing is, like, it was one of those. The beauty of Go Ask Alice in a pre-internet world was like, you believed it because you didn't have anybody around saying, "Well, look, there's this should be setting off red flags for you in terms of believability." You know, I mean, the first drug she takes is acid. That's so wild. Jay's journal was the the follow-up, and that was about um, a teenager who gets caught up in Satanism and a Satanic group. So there's a bunch of – that's a whole separate thing because there's also um, – well, was the same author. This was her follow-up. So, yeah. Um, but who's the um, – is a con artist. I can't think of what her name is. Beatrice Sparks. No, no. This is somebody else. Okay. Um, that's who uh, wrote these. What's the, the – uh, I will Google Satanic Abuse Fraud Book. The weird thing to me is – Satan's Underground. The claims being made in this should make anybody go, there's no way this is true. And I, even if the person seems very traumatized by the claims they're making, there's no way it can be true. Uh, and but we can go ask Alice. It's like, it's one of those things. It's a lot like a current political moment. If you accept that this person dropped acid as their first drug experience when they were like 13 and came from a totally normal, fairly healthy home, right? And the response to this was like, well, let me investigate this world more instead of like, that was terrifying. You know, I mean, you would have laughed a lot, but I think you would have come out of it at 13. Go, Whoa, what happened? And you might talk to your parents about it. You might be ashamed, but you might bring it up, you know, something like that. Um, instead of just, you know, becoming a drug crazed person who can't resist and, and ends up leaving behind an incredibly detailed diary with a very clear moral message. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's like she set off a bunch of red flags, but people bought it. I, I read it in the seventh grade in, uh, in the library at El Roble. The bizarre thing to me is it was still being given to us in like the year 2000 as a real book. I mean, it's it's Googleable at that point. You can find out. It the whole wasn't thing. like not in the year 2000. Hmm. Like the internet existed, but easy searching of information was still a little bit of ways out. And so I remember debating with friends on whether it was real or not because it was obvious to me it wasn't. And yeah. I had friends that were like adamant it was. And I think we were the last generation of teenagers that didn't have access to an internet search engine that could like easily find information. That's super interesting uh, to me because these are there are lots of stories. I mean, urban legends also, that like the, the, the name urban legend wasn't around when I was a kid in the 70s. It was very much, there were these stories. Right? And at some point, I was lucky that I remember somebody giving me some ridiculous one and my mom saying, there's no way that's true. There's no way. <laughs> it was like, well, no, but she said she knew a person. It was like, I know she did, but think about it. <laughs> it's like, and uh, and that's you know, most most of these claims are are. However, we now live. People have taken that tendency and just make bigger claims that you can't. You know, the, the idea is that you get lost in 
in the conspiracy theory, you're incapable of dismissing all the claims. You begin with a couple assumptions. And as I'm sure the listener has guessed, we are talking about today the song Antidote for Strychnine. An Antidote for Strychnine. It's a song written to address the um, the epidemic of uh, strychnine poisonings and the, and the mis- mysterious cabal thought to be uh, behind it all. And we'll be breaking this story wide open on today's episode, and we'll be giving you uh, tips and tricks to avoid uh, renegade strychnine poisoners. Hi, I'm Joseph Fink, podcaster and novelist, and this is the show where I talk with John Darneal, singer and songwriter of the band The Mountain Goats, about what it means to be a fan, to be an artist, and to be both at once. We are going song by song through the brand new Mountain Goats album, In League with Dragons. Now, when we recorded this, the album had a different name and a different track listing. To make it more complicated for ourselves, we also recorded in an order unrelated to either the track listing then or the current track listing, and so we come now here in episode 6 to song 11 of the album, An Antidote for Strychnine. Have you ever heard of the book The Poisoner's Handbook? I know the name, yeah. I just read it, and it, it, so it's, it's all about um, kind of the medical forensics team in 1920s New York City, right. who were the first, at least in the U.S., medical forensics team to really try and figure out how to catch poisoners. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, I wonder if it's still thought the going the going line on, on poisoning as a murder uh, strategy uh, has always been that, like, it, it, it indicates a particularly uh, pernicious and uh, wicked-hearted sort of murderer who who doesn't just want to kill somebody but wants to control it from afar, you know, mm-hmm. and wants and 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 can really sort of ration it. And also, the suffering associated with poison is is great, you know. Like, if you are a mass murderer who's going about it with an assault rifle, you're still a terrible person. But the suffering of a person murdered in a rampage is not as great as you know that guy who who died of what was the was it polonium, the the spy in mm, England, yeah. Where, and you can't even go near these guys when they're dying. Is like that's it takes a pretty wicked person to do something like that, you know. But it's also, I mean, at the time before these forensics teams started to develop methods, it was just a way to not get caught because it was it was almost impossible to catch poisoners for a long time. Yeah, are there poisoners in? Isn't there a poisoning in Conrad's The Secret Agent? I forget. I know there's a, there's a bomb at the center of that book. Uh, one of the incredibly. You ever read The Secret Agent? I've uh, only read one short story by Conrad ever. And the thing about Conrad. It's problematic, but that's an author who grown-ups should read. Like the 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 adult world in Conrad, it uh, you'll recognize things in it, <laughs> and 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 he structures the the stories in such a way that the point of it, like you know, I, I read whole books that I really enjoy, and then you say what what happened in the book, you know, no, uh, vaguely remember. Okay, it, was, it has one character been Conrad. I remember the exact movement of the secret agent toward its two horrible reveals. It's like, and it's not even being lurid about it. He doesn't make big bank off the bad moments. It's just that the plot leads you to this place that you never forget it. Going back from poisoning yeah. for a moment, uh, we were talking about this on Cadaver Sniffing Dog, that these songs all, not all, but these songs often seem to be moving towards the theme of the album from metaphor and often yeah. from very dark metaphors. Ones uh, often involving secret miss- missions or espionage. This this song has talk of sn- smuggling things over a border. Right. Why are those images kind of interesting to you? I mean, th- that that's that's bedrock level stuff. You know, why why are you turned on by the things that turn you on? Sure, you can. I, I, there are people who like to worry that question. I don't that much. I mean, it's like I am drawn to dark imagery. I like them. Right, I like stuff like that. I've always liked 
wicked looking stuff. Even though when I was a kid, I would like get pretty reactionary about it. Like I would hear about slasher movies, and I would see Siskel, Siskel and Ebert give their anti-slasher movie special episode to talk about how horrible these are, and I would be like eleven, going, "Yeah, you're right. Those are bad. Those are." Books and movies should not be like this. And like three years later, I'm in the theater going like, wow, I'm still feeling bad. Like I have a whole – slasher movies make you feel – especially American ones that make you feel really shitty, right? They're not – you know, if you're just laughing at them, I mean, most of them are just – they take place in this moral vacuum. It's really, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night. God, it's an ugly, ugly movie, you know. Um, but uh, But I am drawn to them. I mean, I do think – I think some of that has to do with uh, experiences I had as a child, you know, and stuff that I've talked about before. You want to control a realm of violence and hurt that over which you did not have control. And one way you can control things you, that you haven't had control over is through art, right? Uh, people talk about catharsis. Uh, I don't know what I think about catharsis, and I know when we talk about it, we're always misconstruing Aristotle's idea anyway. But I think there's an aspect of of being able to experience threatened feelings in a controlled environment, being able to, there was a book whose title I'm always remembering a self-help book called feel the fear and do it anyway. Right. Which is a totally pernicious title. Um, uh, you could tell that to a sociopath. Right? So, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think wanting to control things that if they were actually in your life would be very threatening, you know, wanting to have uh, craving a desire of, of, of influence over your own environment. One way you can do that is in the space of fiction, you know, and uh, the shorter and better answer is that stuff is badass, right? This stuff is really cool. Right? The idea of a guy, but he's, but he's not poisoning. This is about a cure for poison, right? There's poison in it, but, uh, but he's, he's trying to, to. Although the feeling I get from him as a listener is, is that he's a poisoner. He was probably involved on the other end of that. Too. Well, and I've <laughs> talked about this before. Like, it's like, why is he trying to, trying to devise an antidote so that he can poison somebody and then offer to withhold the antidote, right? or is that just you and me, and very ugly way of thinking? And he's actually a very good guy, but but no, I think he's uh, in my version of the story, which it's an open enough story that you can tell your own. Uh, but uh, in my version of the story, he himself is—it's his own poisoning that he's trying to cure. Kick ass, Roman. I gotta ask you: You ready to demo this jam? Yes. Why don't you press that beat button? Yeah, an antidote for strychnine. One, two. Dig around in the garbage. garbage Save up some halibut bones in a jar Scrape a winter's worth of salt deposits From the rusty frame of my car Ask the experts
trying to find. Strength nine. 
fine, buddy. This is your vocals right there. Going back to this idea of attraction to horror or darker things, I mean, I would go farther than saying that it's something that humans often like. I feel like it, it it's probably something humans need because it seems a constant, you know? Yep. There's not a culture that doesn't have scary stories. It's true. Or the thrill-seeking of some kind. What they do with those and what, what role they play in the broader art picture of a culture varies broadly over time and from culture to culture, I think. Yeah, I, I'm just, I don't know, I, you, you think about, there's this spectrum of, of, like, scary stories and also, like, roller coasters and things that are like roller coasters sliding down mountains in various ways. Yeah, there's I'm sorry, this, I just noticed that they didn't, they took away my RE20 and I'm on the hated RM, uh, the SM7 and now I have to redo all my parts. I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't be speaking into this this wretched, wretched microphone. Are you still on the SM7? It's an SM7. RE20s are long and silver. This is the, 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 the devil's microphone. This is absolutely the bad mic. That's not an SM7. That's a AT4040. It was chosen yeah. due to your hatred of SM7s. Cool. So we're going to keep 100% of this in. Grant, keep all of this in. It had a bit of hum on it. Yeah. So oh, okay. I, I have yeah, to yeah. go and noise reduce all the recordings. I figured it was right. This is Audio Technica 4040. You sound great. Yeah. That's all right. right. We'll Let's get back to it. Thank you, Ben. No problem. Let me sit here giving hard looks to the 4040 for the rest of the session. John's still checking out his microphone. Oh, I'm listening. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump ahead to the final version of this. Yeah. Um, because it's a fairly complex arrangement. It builds in layers yes. slowly, uh, which is, uh, I think, kind of a, a something that happens a lot on this album of uh, a very layered arrangement. There's yes. a lot going on, and a it lot kind of, musicians of gets put in you slowly. Pick spots. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the bass parts, uh, we're going to avoid, we had this discussion earlier, we're going to avoid the word simple, but a lot of the bass parts, I think, because there's so much going on, balances that out, that complexity. Whereas this one, uh, I immediately noticed kind of how in the forefront the bass part was. Right. Coming up with a bass part is such a specific skill. Right. Like, like a lot more than just knowing how to play the bass is knowing what a bass should do. Yeah. But this is where, if you're going to the final version, listen to the demo, right? Listen to the pre-production demo, right? There's my demo, which is just keyboard and vocals. I don't think there's any overdubs besides the vocal. Or there's, a, there's a harmony, the clock's ticking. I did a little thing there. Um, but listen to the pre-production versus the final, and notice how much more of everything in the rhythm section there is in the original. Peter was playing these bone-up, bone-up, bone-up disco walk-ups on every, uh, every four, I think, and... Uh, and John was playing more. Time's running short Always seems to run shorter Have some supplies sent From up just past the northern border Keep a line out To the people who take the long This is a song where the challenge was just keep removing, keep taking away, less and less emoting, less and less playing. I didn't play the piano. What happened on the roads there was I played my part, and then um, Bram transcribed what I had played and then played my part from sheet music correctly. Because right? <laughs> my, my feel was like, my feel is halting and more emotive, and I, you know, I, I'm sort of, you know, 
too too halting here and then too hard here. And then Bram played it properly from a transcription of so what I So on the final played. recording, there's there's none of the instruments, are you? No, I'm just singing. Yeah, Bram, it was, it was really awesome that he did that because I was like, he was saying, well, I have a transcription of this. And I was like, well, I had seen his earlier transcription, but it was actually a, it, it had made some corrections. I was like, no, I want the exact notes that I played, I want those to be what we hear, right? But I myself am not good at playing them, right? We'll get it eventually if we put me in the booth, but we'll be here for four hours. I would have gotten it eventually, and we probably would have cobbled it together from multiple takes. But instead, bass and drums were played with me, and then and then Bram played his own transcription along um, to that. And then uh, there's a lot of building on there, a lot of there's a lot of stuff that happens only a couple of times in here. Little muted guitar riffs by Tom Gill, a little percussion overdubs. There's a whole lot going on. And this has to do with something we haven't talked about, which is what happens if you go into producer land, which like I've talked about, was letting Owen produce me. Well, you tell the producer, I mean, this would depend on who your producer is. I'm sure some producers say, you hired me. I will now tell you what to do. Don't worry about anything. You know, And that might be its own struggle. But Bowen and I had long conversations and he, I have the chain open right now. Like he, uh, in December of 17, I have three more questions for you. One, these songs all feature some pretty complicated breakdowns, little moments in the middle with new chord changes and textures. I love it. What are your favorite references for albums that kind of touch upon this level of complexity, right? Two, I want to discuss with you the importance of urgency on your records. You write, you typically write songs at Devo tempos, and these songs are no exception. I, I do take exception to that claim. These are slower songs. It's hard to dress them up without turning them into a mess. I'm curious to discuss what kind of soundscape and instrumentation you had in mind. And three, lastly, what is the overall arc here? The songs I'm hearing are split between the fantasy world and tour life. It has a Coover slash O'Brien-esque effect, or even Wolf and White Van, where the two narratives are strikingly different and yet seem interrelated or maybe not. And I said, okay, well, I actually wrote a sort of press these on the record. I don't even know if I'm using that word correctly. Um, of these records, only the Ricky Lee Jones one hits the spot you're talking about. It's way above my level. But here's what I want to aim for. Albums. Avalon by Roxy Music. The Magazine by Ricky Lee Jones. Ancient Heart by Tinita Tickerum. Uh, Love Deluxe by Sade. And Second Childhood by Phoebe Snow. So these were the ones that I put up. And then we discussed this as a band, but especially among the musicians, especially me and Owen's like, these are our, our load stars, right? I'm not trying to make an album that sounds like those, but I want the album to share creative space with how those records conceive of their songs, right? With how they treat the raw material of the song and, and treat realizing that. And those were our, the ones that I offered. And then I wrote for moods, dark, penitent, brooding, introspective, and ambitious, right? Which I think we hit all those. One of the points from that email, and, and we'll tackle this more when we start getting into some of the songs from the second half. I, I did notice that the second half seems pretty... There's a number of, of songs about touring and also just being a public person, being yes. a performer, seems to kind of come to the forefront in the second half. Yeah, I'm always going to feel a little guilty writing about that. You know, it always, like I say, I've always, you know, judged people for doing it, and then I realize, you know, no, you haven't. You just haven't really read a lot of these songs correctly that you like, you know. But I've, the thing is, like, I do hate the image of like uh, like the ultimate version of it is Jackson Brown's The Loadout, right? Where he's singing about the process of breaking down the stage. Some about that has always been like, you know, he's not even complaining, you know, but it sort of is describing a job that very few people can hold, you know? And mm-hmm. so I'm more interested in stories of people leading normal lives, even though at this point in my development, you reach a point where singing about that, writing books is different. But we're singing about that is no longer at the level of honesty that it was when I was writing these songs for relief from my day job, when it was something I did in my spare time. 
you know, when it actually is what you do, there's uh, there's much to be said for writing from your experience, right? And my experience right now is as a somewhat isolated person uh, because the reality of my daily work is something that really can only be discussed in any useful way for either party with other people who do it. Like I work 14 or 15 hours a day, but most people would not, most people would go, Oh yeah. Well, how many people? How many people told you what you had to do today? Right. Well, none. Right. I'm the guy. Right. And so that's a privilege. And you know, I never want to be complaining about that. But at the same time, it just fucks you up so bad. There's a reason why all celebrities are the way they are. It's very hard to remain uh, emotionally healthy in in this gig. It's the paradox of kind of the role of artists in our culture is we look yeah. to artists to reflect and comment on our lives, but the the ones that are the best at that or I say best, but the ones that spark with people, the ones that get popular, their lives are so transformed. Yeah. They have to kind of try to remember what it used to be like. That's or... why you got to keep your eye on the ball, man, because like you – if you are really doing a good job of it, it does not matter if you are writing from the experience of – look, Michelangelo, right, is in this exalted position of painting a ceiling of something – no painter can can hope to, to do something like that or the bridge that he designed that didn't get built – but there's a universality to that work if you are staying if, – if the artist is remaining true to the artistic impulse, which doesn't know anything about your day jobs or, or whether you have money or don't. You know, it's like it, – it, it's a whole – it's separate. It's, it's basic, basic and primal. And when you're making art, I think if you're inhabiting the listener as yourself, right, you're, you're trying to write with a view to listening, then you're elsewhere. You're, you're not uh, – you are no longer – you are the exact same person you were at the beginning in some ways. It's a tricky balance, and it's, again, one of those ones that you can never, like, complain about it. Like, right. writing about – even writing about that balance would be a tricky thing well, to be hard like. because you don't – I mean, it depends on who you are. There's plenty of people who you know, have book contracts are out there on Twitter right now talking about how hard it is to come up with something to write about. And I'm like, man, please let me never be perceived as complaining about my job, even though – you know, like, I mean, one thing I can complain about my job, it has ruined my wrists, right? It really has. And uh, writing books and playing piano and all that stuff, my wrists are fucked, right? I mean, I'm in pain every day. Well, to me, that's, I've come to think of that as a trade-off. When it first happened, I lost my mind. Uh, but uh, but now I think it's a good trade. It's a good trade. I love my job. You know, anything else I lost, my 20% of my hearing in my right ear, that's okay. right? Uh, but when it first happened, I lost my mind. And uh, but, I, but at the same time, it's like practically anybody out on a day job grind is like, Please hurt my wrists and take away some of my hearing and let me not have to wake up when I don't want to wake up, you know, and go work for a place I don't care about just to pay the goddamn rent. And I totally am, you know, I'm always wanting to, it's a balance. Cause man, when I hear artists whining about their grind, I'm like, yo, complain about that on the job with the other people on the same job. Do not, <laughs> don't take that outside, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a very stressful few years for me but at the same time one thing i do come back to you just mentioned is i have not had to wake up with an alarm other than when i'm on tour but otherwise i've not had to wake up an alarm since i moved to this job and i like i will i'll take the rest of that my son wakes me up at 4 30 so that's true that was that's a choice i made this is a very kind of personal issue for me because meg and i have really been struggling the last few years with the question of whether to have kids just asking Yeah, just trying to figure out, well, like, so, I mean, you have two kids, yep. both uh, you and your wife work. And so, like, how does how does being a working artist, how has that been? Uh, so, I mean, it's a very complicated question because 
Like I, one thing that I hope I'm giving my children is that they get to see that I work all the time. I work seven days a week and I'm proud. I love my work ethic. Right? I love the fact that I wake up and I start thinking about what I'm going to do today. Right. And, uh, and I don't like to stay idle. And I'm, if I'm not writing songs, I'm writing books. And if I'm not writing songs or books, I'm thinking about song titles. I'm thinking about how I'm going to play. I'm writing set lists for tour. I'm thinking about how I can keep the set list interesting instead of just doing the same thing. And I love that. Because uh, I had to develop that, right? I didn't, I uh, because of a bunch of stuff I don't want to really go into. Uh, from the time I was five on, my main male role model just hated his job, just complained about it all the time, right? And the thing is, like, I get it. I've had loads of jobs I complain, but I have a job that I like, and I think work is inherently noble. I think man, meaning humankind, works. I think work is good, right? I think work is not good in an environment where labor is being exploited. But I think work is, is a big part. Of everything is work. Work is good. You see it when children turn two or even before two. They start working. They start building stuff. They want to work. It's play also. The problem with work is the way that we conceive of it in a capitalist economy. Not The problem is not actually with work. Work is inherently noble, right? Well, that philosophy, because I work a job that I really enjoy and that gives me so much, so much feedback just in the process and then from people who enjoy it, I really want to pass that along to my dudes, you know? And that is a real great thing about the balance. They get to see that I work. They work with me. They will, as they grow, they will understand. It's like this stuff that we were doing and having a blast with is also stuff other people enjoy, right? And that also helps put food in the fridge, right? And so that's cool, right? That's really a huge honor. But at the same time, my younger son is really starting to very deeply resent that I keep leaving. I mean, like, and this is reflected in his behavior. Young kids don't have a way uh, of expressing, of sitting you down and going, you know, when you're gone, I note your absence and it I don't have as much fun, you know, the fun that we have every day, I don't get to have. And then I feel a little sad about it. I don't know where to put that sadness. They don't have a way of saying this. They act, right? Young children express very naturally. And he just starts, you know, being kind of a stinker to his mom in an unfun way. This is not, you know, the sort of stuff that mommy's complaining about. It's just refusing to do stuff. Uh, No big deals, refusing to nap, nothing that's major. But it reflects a bad feeling, right? The touring lifestyle is not good. Capitalism isn't good for the family. You know, capitalism mandates that for most people, and I get really emotional about this, but, you know, maternal leave in the U.S. is a fucking crime. It is a crime that puts you back in the job after two weeks. Two weeks is not enough time with your infant. You should have two years, right? And they should pay you for that two years, right? When you come back, welcome back to work, right? Now you get to work again and you would enjoy your job more. Instead, there's people, there's places that have no place for you to lactate, right? It's going to the toilet, you know, and, and it's like really degrading and horrible. And I, I went through heavy stuff about it when Roman was first born. And stuff like that, to do your work in this economy, in this economic reality of what many call late capitalism, but I'm not that comfortable with the term because I don't know for a fact that it's actually that late. That's always been my question about late. It seems such an optimistic phrase. Yeah, no, it's, I don't, I, I think it's a nice, how nice to think that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not that, I mean, the thing is, like, because I work a job where I'm self-employed, you know, it's like I often have more favorable, you know, uh, impressions of the, of the whole deal than, you know, than I feel is really, you know, than, than is available to most people. But, uh, but I know what they mean. I mean, it's at this stage in the development of this exploitative and unhealthy economic model that we work on, we have these, these realities that, that damage Families, you know, which in our society, which purportedly, you know, purportedly we're all about families here, but that the the way we conceive of work and remuneration and time off and everything is so anti-family, it, it, it you know it makes it hard to be a family. And in my job, 
I have to leave for two, three, four weeks. I can't do it on record sales. That's dead. That's over. Right? I'm not going to complain about that. That's just what happened. Right? Uh, in the old days, a lot of musicians, Fleetwood Mac didn't have to follow up rumors for a couple of years because you know they made a bunch of money off the sales of the record and off the tour. But uh, but yeah, I mean, on on the older model, if you made a record that made you enough money, you'd stay home for a few years. That's no longer available to pretty much anybody, right? If you make a record, you got to go out and tell people it exists and be good live, right? And that's fine because I love to play music. But being away from home a lot, you know, I don't like it. I don't like being away from the kids for that long. It's not a vacation for me. It's hard to be away from them. Uh, being a father is my main calling, you know, and uh, and so, yeah. And that's, but, but the thing is, but it also, being a father is also hard. It's a lot of work, you know. And I do experience this live where I'll be on stage now and I'll go like, Look at the ridiculous luxury of your life that you get to stand here and give all your energy to the audience and get so much back from them. I mean, it just feels like, you know, I used to whine a lot on solo tours back before I was a parent. I, I think now you spoiled, spoiled creature. Like it's, it's an honor and a privilege, you know. So, so it's complex uh, what it does. But did I answer your question? <laughs> no, I mean, it's yeah. I don't think anyone can answer. I mean, I don't know if you've ever Googled "Should I have kids?" But uh, you get some interesting, you get some interesting. So answers. if you, so here's the thing. I think if you can have children and not tour, then you should not tour, right? You should not go out, right? If you're going to have kids, but I don't. You don't have to tour, as far as I know, right? You can, but you're not actually. One I of also the write books, though, and like so, this book tour I'm about to go on is the shortest book tour. I've ever done and it's 17 cities. Yeah, that's not a short book tour. Exactly. You, you that's, but that's it, the shortest so, one I've yeah. done so far out of three. Um, and yes, I understand I could say no, but since most people don't even get book tours, I would feel like an asshole saying no to eh, that. You should still say no to some I, stuff. I know. But it's a thing of, uh, I believe in selling a book. Like, I, I understand yeah. it's no, a I job it. and I, I believe going out there and selling it in the same way, you know, getting out there and telling people about the album. Well, the thing is with book tour, it really, it depends on, on who you are, but the question you have to ask yourself is how many of the people who are buying the books because you're there to read were not going to buy it otherwise? Now, I think with Night Vale, so many people are so committed to the concept that I wonder how many converts you're getting by being there. I wonder how many books you're selling that you were not going to sell, right? Whereas I know with hard copies of records, if I am out in a club, I'm going to sell records that people weren't going to buy otherwise. So That's true. I mean, it's it's the insecurity of art too. Though, yep. like you just you you believe that if you're not standing in front of them, you're they will forget about you. Yeah. Well, I mean, that the thing is, yeah, that, that, and that's a personal failing. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolute failing. Because what does it matter? Is like if you actually believe in what you do, you should be as happy to be making it for one person as for a hundred. You know, and but uh, but nobody is because art is weird and uh, and art speaks poorly of artists, including myself. I was talking. Um, a uh, friend of mine, novelist Glenn David Gold, mm-hmm. you know, he's part of kind of the school of writers that puts out a book once every five to nine years. Right. I'm, I'm sorry, Glenn, if you're listening to this and I, I've got the number of years wrong, I forget exactly how long. Both of us have so many projects going on at all times, you and me. Mm. And I often think with such jealousy of these writers that just are like, it's been seven years. Here's my new book, and I will be back in seven years again. Well, uh, don't take this the wrong way because I know one or two of those two, but I just think they're better than we are. <laughs> you know, it's like I really do. I think I'm proud of what I do and everything, but the ones of those I know is like their commitment to and belief in what they're doing is such that I don't think they're, you know, I mean, I'm actually trying to tend in that direction is to have enough faith and belief in my own stuff to go, so what if everyone forgets? Give it to your work. Give it. 
give it to the work, right? And like, but there are those of us who who have whatever it is that that need. I mean, you know, some of that has to do with I'm a bad actor, but there's a lot of the stage in me. And if the stage is your place, you are an addict, right? You need the feeling of being on stage, right? Even you know whether you're getting a good pop or no from the audience, you need you need something about that. You need the presence of of the people who are engaged with what you're doing, you know. And that is where I live for a, a, a big part. Even though when I'm going from tour, we were just talking about, you know, how it's difficult to be away from home. But as soon as I get back on stage, like all these anything I say complaining about it, all that stuff just evaporates the second uh, we hear our intro music. Then I'm present in this blessed sacred spot that I get to visit all this time. But people like the guy you're talking about, it's like, I, I do think, you know, these, these are the, the ones with the big visions that they trust. Well, it's the gra- uh, grass is uh, always greener thing because Glenn's answer was very different. Yeah. Glenn's answer was like, I mean, he was like, you would hate it because he's like, it may look yeah. peaceful on the outside. But he's like, what it looks like from the inside is I oh, spend, turmoil. <laughs> I spend eight months writing a book and then I hate it and so I throw it away. And then I spend six months not writing at all and hating myself for not writing. And it's just like – Yeah, no, I gloss over process. the hate myself part. But when I hear – I threw away the thing I'm working on right now. I had a giant plot arc, right? And I had put in hours on this. Like, not when I say hours, I don't mean a few hours. I mean, I'd put in months of hours every day of developing this thing. I had read a scene to my wife, and she had thought that was very moving and said it was very good, you know, and I knew it was good. I knew it was moving, and and it was a big part of the book. And I looked at it one moment, and I had a very serious difficulty with something about it, and it was was four in the morning. I'd woken up thinking about it, and I I went, what if I'm— what if that guy doesn't die? What if, what if nobody dies there, right? Now, this took away. Obviously, if you have a death in your narrative and you take that away, it, probably a lot of stuff was revolving around that death. And I said, what if what if he doesn't die? And I immediately said, that's correct. That is cor- the correct thing to do. And this involved dragging, dragging 7,000 words into the trash, right? And that's a heavy thing to do when you empty that trash. And I was so happy I did it. And I was like, I, I called one of my big novelist friends. And I was like, I just threw away seven thousand. Oh, isn't it great? I like they, they I, like I, I don't know about their own self doubt, but like I had a moment where I was like, you regret Rue for the time lost. I'm supposed to hand this thing in at some point, you know. And I already know, I'm not going to make the deadline. Um, but uh, but it felt great. Like it felt it felt amazing. It felt like like I was putting myself last and putting what I'm doing first. And I think that's the correct relationship to your art. I think, you know, if it's about my own self-gratification, there's easier methods of self-gratification than than making stuff, you know. Some of it isn't self-gratification. Some of it's just efficiency. And, well, again, maybe this comes down to my own belief that I won't live that long. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I've never... I've never thrown away anything I've written in the last few years professionally. Not that I haven't edited it or taken care with it, but anything that I've taken time out of my life to write, I will find some way of using. God, I love throwing things away. I, <laughs> I know love you, it. but you do that. You, I mean, you do that with music too, right? Yeah. Like you write songs that you never release. Oh yeah, and then I delete. <laughs> I, I record and delete. Maybe I'll get there. I, it, it to me, it's just like my life is so busy that if I'm going to spend a day working on a thing. Even if I have to strip it down to parts and rearrange it to make it work, I want to find some use for it. It's one of the temptations when you become a parent, actually, is that uh, that you think, well, look, if I don't throw anything away, at some point, somebody will give me something for this stuff that I don't consider good. And that's Satan speaking to you, man. <laughs> that is the devil telling you to put commerce and the happiness of your children who need to learn how to work themselves, right, uh, you know, ahead of what's right. And what's right is to say, if this is not good, 
then nobody should have to be asked to pay a dime for it, right? Um, or, or even just spend their time downloading it for free. Right? It's like, don't put it out there if it's not good enough. <laughs> well, I also, I, I have, I have struggles with the belief in not good enough. I often think it's it's almost impossible for an artist to tell whether what they've done is good or not. Yeah, I don't agree with that. Okay, I, I just I have a process. I, I know where that thought's coming from, but uh... I have like a process. I have like this is my editing process. I put it through that process in order to make sure it's as good as I can make it. But I I often find that when I'm in the middle of a project, I have lost all ability to tell whether it's good or not. No, this is where I do subscribe to some auteurist notions of uh, of of. Productivity. It's like when there's people who say, well, you know, I I like this song. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, it's yeah, it's not really a very good one. And then we'll say, well, no, it's what the listener makes of it. Go, yeah, but you know, and I, and I do think the artist knows more about whether something, whether care was taken with it or not. Yeah, I, well, but that's that's the what you have control over, right? That's why I have this process because yeah. I'm like, this is the amount of care I can put into it. Here's the levels of work I can edit it this way and then this way, and I'll do it this many times, mm-hmm. and so I can ensure that everything I've put out has put the right amount of care into it. But I can't have the objective nature of being like, is this some of my best work? Is this garbage? It's sometimes hard. Yeah, to have I mean, that objective thing. My own situation is very different because, as you know, I stopped writing my own songs in 2009, and John Worcester uh, took up the helm and and does the lyrics and music now. And so, I mean, when that started happening, my own relationship to the work changed radically, as you might sure. imagine. You're listening to "I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats," where we reveal things about John it's Worcester the big as a twist songwriter so, of this episode. I wish to. I mean, seriously, why can we just pretend that's true for the rest of the whole time and go? We well, had. Um, <laughs> The part in uh, Goths, right? One of the songs in Goths was written by yep. one of the... Uh, Peter wrote the uh, the coda to uh, Shelved at my request. Has that ever happened in a Mountain Goats um, co-writing? This is the... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You couldn't see my expression, but there's a story I've told before about uh, John Vanderslice trying to change a lyric on the Sunset Tree. I don't remember what exactly. It was some minor phrasing fix, right, that he liked. So what if you sang this? And I just looked at him, right? I just gave him this, like, you know... And, and you could feel the temperature in the room drop by two degrees. And he said, he went, you know, or you could just, you know, tell me that I am nothing. And, a pe- <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, because I was giving this look like, John, I shouldn't have to tell you that, that nobody gets the input. But this, generally speaking, that's, you know, the one thing you get from the Mountain Goats reliably is where I'm at lyrically, right? You get what I do, right? Um, and I don't think of that as, you know, if that's collaborative, it's that I take influence from people I know and conversations I've had and, and you know, experiences and so forth. But it, but it is the thing that I do, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's an expression of my ideas. But that was, that was a growth step for me in Goths that I knew when I was writing. I think Peter said four or five songs into the writing of Goths. He's like, you know, I think these are some of the best songs you've written, but I should also preface this by saying your subject here is so close to my heart. Right, and the stuff that you are writing is so exactly in my wheelhouse that I may lack objectivity to say because like, this is like you are writing the album that I want to make. He was saying, which is true. Right? And I wrote shelved, and I was just in. A, I had this coda at the end, and I didn't finish it. I think I was busy. I think I'd been working on it for a while. I was using a, a MIDI interface to do the the synth part in the demo, and I was like, you know, I've been doing this for three and a half hours. I'm, I'm going to stop. And that's and it sat. But I really want to share it with Peter because I really liked it. And I sent it to him. I said, "Well, this one's not done yet." And then, like a month later, I think it was in Ireland on a ferry between Ireland and England. I was like, "Hey, man, I was thinking about asking you to finish the song. What do you think?" And I remember him going, "Well, I could, but..." And I was very hesitant. I said, "No, give it a try. You know, it's like people are still going to get plenty of, of my stuff. Do the thing." And there was what's beautiful about this. Like Peter did something 
totally different from what I would have done. Uh, I, I would never have had that idea. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, we've also talked about collaboration. Yeah. Like my, my belief is collaboration works best when someone brings something that you would never have done yourself ever. Yeah. I just want to take a quick moment to tell you about the cool I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats merch that is available to you. Do you like the logo of the show? Well, you can get it in one of its many colors on a shirt or tote. And you can also get a shirt that says, literally, I Only Listen to Podcasts About the Mountain Goats. Also available is the complete cover album we made last year, in which artists such as Craig Finn, Dessa and Laura Jane Grace cover every track of All Hail West Texas. Find all of that now at IOnlyListenToTheMountainGoats.com. Coming back to this song, another kind of, uh, I would say, a minor lyrical theme in this album that I noticed was chemistry. Um, Going Invisible 2 talks about chemistry sets. I believe I'd have to look through the lyrics, but I believe Done Bleeding talks about chemicals as well. I might be entirely wrong I'm about that. I'm to think. I'll, I'll find the lyric for. I don't I just didn't know if there was anything there in writing about chemistry. Well, I'm a drug addict. I, <laughs> um, I mean, no, I don't. I'm, I'm bad at chemistry. I'm bad at, at hard science generally. Um, mm-hmm. so, so there's no, uh, nothing in there. I mean, I wanted, I, I, it's one of the things I look up to, you know, and people who, who understand it and are good at it. And I think, oh, wow, you, you have something I really can't get to, right? Um, uh, there's toxins in non bleeding. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, that's of course our. Um, there's some sonic stuff in there, like the word chemical, the word chemistry. Those are good, good Greek words. Really, really nice stuff. I mean, I think probably it does have a lot to do with the amount of time that I spent uh, taking drugs. You know, that, that you, you start to think of chemicals. You know, it's like uh, there's a slogan: "Better living through chemistry." Right. Sure. And uh, that that slogan is popular among drug addicts. <laughs> so. Uh, I mean, I think I think that's a, a big part. I mean, you think about brain chemistry too. You know, you think about 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 body and brain chemistry, and that the Dickens line I'm always mentioning. You know, where he he says to the ghost of Marley, "You may be an undigested bit of beef," right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's true. The ghost might well just be something going on in your body, right? Um, yeah, I'm just thinking this through on the fly, but like I do think um, that my interest in chemistry is an interest in the relationship between your consciousness and your body, and the things you put into it, or that are already happening in it with with or without your consent. Yeah, I mean, it raises a question. If if something you put into it completely changes your experience of you, then that does always raise the question of who you were in the first place. Yeah, that's right. That's what people take drugs for. <laughs> uh, somebody who never I've, – I've always been not a drug person my entire life. Oh, yeah. Even pot kind of freaks me out. Oh, I always loved them. I thought that, that they would cook as many as I could. <laughs> and with that, I think we've done antidote restriction. No, we can't. I mean, really, we haven't even parsed the lyric on this one because we haven't even. Oh, actually, okay, good. We haven't even. We haven't actually talked about what it's about. Okay, uh, go for it. Tell so, me. So uh, let me just do a riff on this one and talk because I, it, I, I didn't. This is one where I didn't know it. Nobody told me uh, that this was what it's about. But but I noticed after when I once I had the title track from the record and once I had realized the space that some of these things share, where you have. Uh, an aging espionage guy in Waylon Jennings Live, and you have somebody reflecting on the difference between a younger self and his older self in the title track, and you have somebody anticipating uh, the coming of a long-awaited uh, destroyer in A League with Dragons, and I'm assuming, well, this is about waiting for things over a long period of time, and it's about me, right? Um, and then I had already written this, and then I read it, and I realized that this is about me teaching myself how to write songs, right? Um, it's about my time in the room in Norwalk that I've talked about a little bit, uh, and it's about... Um, how for me, this was a, a self-teaching time of great solitude, 
right? And in the antidote, and it took me forever to, I mean, I had the title, I liked the title, right? But, but it's like, well, I'm trying to cure myself of the person that I struggle to forgive and become better by making stuff, right? It's like, you know, that's the thing. If you make stuff, you may say that it's for other people and it is, but you get the benefit of your own work if you're doing, if you're writing something that's intended to help people, you can't help but get a little help from it. And and that is what a lot of this is about. But again, at the same time, because I like to write stuff that that makes you know that makes people cry, I like I like to to cause a little pain in the hope of of alleviating some pain. You know, there's the possibility that the narrator inside the story is himself the poisoner, right? That that there wouldn't be any poison, no any strychnine to be cured of if you weren't disseminating strychnine into the world, right? Um, but I mean, this is a song about about uh, uh, the permanence of the occupation. I think it's a song about about teaching myself to write and understanding that I'm affecting some great change in myself. Given that metaphor, it raises actually a new question for me about the story. That even if he's also the poisoner and the healer, I mean, the question is whether his victim and the person he's healing is just himself. That's correct. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, I think we talked about this before. Like, there's one way of reading dreams where you just assume that every single person in your dream is you. So you start asking yourself questions. Why do you say somebody's attacking you in your dream? Because you were crying, say, right? Why are you attacking yourself for crying? Why are you angry at yourself for crying? Or are you angry, right? What's, what, what's the motive for the attack? And no matter how ornate the dream is, all the players, you start saying, how come this part of you wants to say or do that to this part of you or whatever? And I think that songs are very like dreams in that, you know, you, and so it's fiction that, you know, all your characters, sooner or later, it's your version of that character, right? You are inside that character. So it's, you tell me something about yourself with every character you write. And I think that's true. You know, I think, I think uh, if you have a poisoner who's developing a cure still, you are both the poisoner and the, and the, and the curer in both of them. some halibut bones in a jar scrape a winter's worth of salt deposits from the rusty frame of my car ask the experts maybe they'll know in Cambridge See what he remembers Throw white phosphorus in the fireplace Look for clues in the embers Call the hotline Give them a phony last name to find an antidote for strychnine trying to find 
time's running short Always seems to run shorter Have some supplies sent From up just past the northern border Keep a line out To the people who take the long view share my research with sick lab rats like me trapped behind the beakers and the Erlenmeyer flasks cut off from the world I may not ever get free but I may
In League with Dragons is out now. You should get that. The Mountain Goats are also on tour throughout this year, and they are very, very worth seeing live. We have two new Welcome to Nightville episode collection books out right now. These are fully illustrated with a ton of behind-the-scenes commentary. Great way to try out the show if you're curious. Get them wherever you get books. I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats is a production of Night Vale Presents with Merge Records. It is produced by Christy Gressman, editing by Grant Stewart, mixing by Vincent Cascione. All music courtesy of the Mountain Goats and Merge Records. Thank you to Christina Rents, Ryan Madison, Seaside Lounge in Brooklyn, and The Rubber Room in Chapel Hill. Check out nightvalepresents.com for more information about this show and all of our other shows, like the quiet suburban music fiction podcast It Makes a Sound, in which a woman dives deep into the life of her favorite musician, only to find a story about memory, vacant golf courses, and the lies we tell ourselves to make life bearable. There are also tons of catchy songs. It Makes a Sound. Thanks for listening, and hail Satan. Alice Isn't Dead is a horror-thriller road trip from the team behind Welcome to Night Vale and starring Jessica Nicole of Fringe and Night Vale. A truck driver searches the country for the long-lost wife she thought was dead, but Alice isn't dead. If you love American Gods or Stephen King or Night Vale, you'll love this show. The entire series available to binge now wherever you listen to podcasts.